Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Greatest Games on the Blizzard. My name is Mark Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us is Nick Ames, football reporter for The Guardian. Nick, good to have you on the pod. Hi Marcus, thanks for having me. Now today we go back to October 2014 for the Euro 2016 Group I qualifier in Belgrade between Serbia and Albania that was awarded as a 3-0 win to Albania after the match had been abandoned after 42 minutes. Nick, why have you chosen this game? I've chosen this game because it wasn't really much of a game, <laughs> but but the <laughs> but the two, three, four, five minutes when when it went completely crazy, as we'll go into later, was probably the most remarkable, weird and plain dangerous scenario I've ever seen inside a football stadium. One one of the strangest nights of, of my life in any context, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. And also a, a completely non-footballing moment as well, where this sort of shuddering condition of geopolitical, very localised geopolitical concerns sort of crashed into each other and created something that was not just back page news, it was front, front page news as well, I think. Yeah, it was an incredible story. And I feel, it, it, if people are looking for Jonathan to do a tactical rundown of those 42 minutes, they might be disappointed uh, in this podcast. Um, there's, there's an awful lot of context uh, uh, needed for this. Um, I'll start us off, Jonathan, by saying Group I uh, consisted of Portugal, uh, who won the group, of course. (laughs) Uh, They'd lost the opening game to Albania. They had. had. I guess, in its own way, helped increase the tensions, (laughs) because suddenly Albania were sniffing qualification, which they'd never done for a major tournament before. Yeah, well, they, so they're in Portugal, obviously, Albania, Denmark, Serbia, and Armenia. Um, Armenia and Azerbaijan were kept apart in qualifying. People will be aware of that. Uh, it was Henrik Mkhitaryan and Arsenal, the Europa League, and, and, and all that business. Um, but Albania and Serbia um, were not kept apart. UEFA said this was because they'd not been um, directly involved in, in fighting a war with each other. Um, they, of course, have strong disagreements with regards to Kosovo, it's fair to say. Um, but neither association asked to be separated from the other, Jonathan. So there they were in the group. Um, but we know that there is there is a lot of history between these two. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, there has throughout the 20th century, or, or certainly post-Second World War, there's been a lot of uh, tensions in terms of borders, and Kosovo is the, 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 the flashpoint. And without wanting to get bogged down in too mm. much of a detail of this, I, I'm also acutely conscious that my understanding of this comes broadly from the Serbian side. So there may well be a, a slightly different uh, telling of this, but essentially Kosovo is... Um, hugely important to the Serbian sense of nationhood that the key battle uh, when Serbia was occupied by the Ottoman Empire came in 1389 that the field of blackbirds Kosovo Polia um, where the Serbs were defeated Prince Lazar was killed but also the Sultan Murad was killed and this is seen as sort of the heroic last battle of Serbian defiance and so this battle the battlefield becomes sort of sanctified the five key monasteries of the Serb Orthodox Church and the Serb Orthodox Church is obviously very important to Serb nationhood, are in Kosovo. So that's why Serbia feels it has a an emotional, historical claim on Kosovo. And for a long time, you had ethnic Albanians and ethnic Serbs living side by side. Uh, and I remember talking to Shefki Kuchi, who is a, a Kosovan Albanian who uh, fled to Finland, and him saying that you know when he grew up, you know, you had ethnic Albanians, ethnic Serbs living perfectly happy next door to each other. 
And then as tensions ramp up through the 90s, uh, things start to uh, get unpleasant. Now, one of the reasons for that, uh, Serbs would tell you, is um, an increase in the number of ethnic Albanians living there, partly through immigration and partly, they say, because the Albanian birth rate is much higher. Now, I have to say, I've not been able to find any evidence as to whether that's true or not. Uh, but also, Kosovo was not an economically vibrant area, so a lot of Serbs left to go to Belgrade. And so eventually you get a situation where an area where you have had a balance becomes very predominantly ethnically Albanian. And you then have that absolutely intractable problem of who has the right, who owns the land. Is it the people who live there or is it the people with historical claim? And as with a lot of cases all over the world, those two things don't really go together. So that's why Kosovo is such a flashpoint. Mm -hmm. And Albania had not played a, a game in Belgrade since 1967. So this game is is a huge moment for that reason. And then you also have the following week, Eddie Rama, the Prime Minister of Albania, is making a state visit to Belgrade, which is also of historical significance, historical importance. And actually, I, I, mean, I don't know if you would agree, Nick, but it seems to me... Both governments, both football federations really missed an opportunity to make the game about sort of a uh, you know, a festival of newfound friendship between the two nations in the context of that official state visit. Yeah, I was, I was just looking actually at, at my, my preview or one of the several previews I wrote of that game and I was commenting that there seemed to be some appetite from both sides about, you know, making it a, a nice bilateral event um, with with the visit coming up and... Um, so there was definitely an appetite for that politically, but afterwards it ended up with having a lot of fingers pointed. I'd also point out that, yeah, um, as well as the, the, the historical claims and that kind of thing on Kosovo, um, there was the war as well in the, in, in the late 90s and so many very open wounds on, on, on both sides, but particularly the, the, Kos the Kosovan Al Albanian side, I think. A lot of people who had lost people, a lot of people for whom it was still... Any any kind of meeting between these these two two teams would be a very visceral event um, with a lot of open wounds. So I think um, yeah, there's the historical angle, but there was also also something very immediate from the past twenty years. Well, and of course uh, this was sort of foreseen because Albanian fans were banned from attending the match in Serbia. So people were aware, of course, I mean, how on earth could they not be? But Nick, when you went to this match and, and you you were you, you know, you were sort of on, on your on, on your way there, I mean I presume right, nobody could have predicted what would happen. But did did you feel it? Did you think, well oh, hang on, there might be something in the air well, tonight? Well do you know what? Like um at the time I was working for I, I was mainly a freelancer really working for um, the Guardian and ESPN and a few others at the time. And Jonathan knows this well. You, you, you'll you sort of have a look down the international break calendar and think, where might something really go down in the next sort of break? And at the moment that draw was made, it, it completely jumps out at you. And I looked at that and thought, okay, I bet not many people are going to end up going there. I'm going to go and check this out and see what happens. But I must admit, another thing that Jonathan will probably also agree with is that um is that a lot of journalism is often about previewing the uh, the occasion and writing this big piece about what's about to maybe happen 
and then it doesn't really happen and goes off quite smoothly. And that's what I thought was going to happen here, to be honest. I've, you know, I wrote about all the geopolitical concerns. I've, I wrote about the history. I wrote about the footballing angle as well and how it could be such a, a seismic affair. But I didn't really, on the day of the game, get a sense of it. I'd been the day before to... um, I'd been in Bosnia the day before. I, I thought I'd combine a few games and I went to... It was Bosnia v. Belgium in Zenica. Um, wrote a piece about Belgium for somebody and then got about two hours sleep back at the hostel in uh, in Bosnia with um with a friend of the show Sasha Ibrul, um mm. who who I'm sure you guys know because mm. we were because we we were making this journey together so we got about two hours sleep in our hostel in, in Sarajevo and then we had to catch this flight and we arrived in um in Belgrade at probably about eight a.m. And I must admit, the enthusiasm at that point to go to another football match was <laughs> was pretty slim. And yeah. I, I remember walking around Belgrade that afternoon, and, and it was so so quiet. You know, mm. no indication of anything. I remember saying to Sasha, "Oh, we could just go for a couple of beers. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen." <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it was said in in sort of fifty percent joke, but you know, we weren't really feeling it. But then mm. you get there, maybe you know. At a game like that, you have to get into the stadium quite a long time before kickoff, because otherwise you are going to have problems. With, mm-hmm. uh, and you turn up about three hours before, and um, there was probably more armed police outside Partizan Stadium and in the sort of half mile surrounding it than I've seen anywhere in my entire life. And it was getting darker, and suddenly you can start start to cut that tension with a knife. And you walk towards the stadium, and and then suddenly your hair starts raising up on end. And mm-hmm. once we got in there, it just hit another level, of course. But yeah, certainly throughout the the day building up to it, mm-hmm. I couldn't have told you that was going to happen. Yeah. Jonathan, you mentioned earlier, obviously, Albania, they got off to a flyer in the group, beating Portugal 1-0. Um, <laughs> mention the sort of the footballing side of things sort of slightly you know they're drawn at home with with Denmark going into this match with with Serbia so and of course Albania would go on to qualify for the their first major tournament you know so there, there was a bit of expectation as well uh in a footballing sense that because you know Serbia obviously we know some of their players and they they've 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 played at uh, sort of one or two tournaments before but there was a there was a little bit extra something in a, in a footballing sense as well yeah i mean and serbia had, had uh, they'd drawn their they only played one game at this point and they'd drawn that away to armenia which uh, i think even at the time was was pretty obviously a poor result i mean armenia ended up finishing bottom of the group so the yeah there was pressure on serbia um but yeah i, I think albania the 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 there must have been a sense i mean you know they they had uh, Loixana and uh, Tom and Xhaka, uh, probably the the two best known players. But they they and, you know Loixana of course had been captain of Marseille, had his glorious season at Sunderland, um, and, and it, you know was a genuinely very very good footballer. So I I think there was a sense that yes they had a a decent side, but also if you win away to Portugal, uh, I mean obviously we didn't know then that Portugal were going to go on to win it, but winning away in Lisbon. Is a big result, and it gives you, a, and especially with three teams to qualify, or or you know two teams plus a handful of best third place teams to qualify, it's it, you know they they they're in a great position. I guess they're looking at that game in Belgrade, thinking, well, you know, if, if we can get a result here, suddenly our only hard game left is going to Denmark, and and if you only have to finish top three to to qualify or to have a you know to be in the playoff to qualify, then avoiding defeat in Belgrade almost gets them there. 
and they did really fancy their chances. I, I remember because they they were managed at the time by a very wily old Italian guy called Gianni DiBiase, who's sort of been around at some some fairly modest clubs. I I think mainly in in Syria and and Serie B, um, and it was pretty. I wouldn't go as far as saying it was old school Catamaccio, but it was making the most of what they had, which was sort of eleven warriors like someone like Lawrence Sanna, for example. Um, and they 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 were very inconvenient opponents, I, I think, for a Serbia team that, as with most Serbia teams, you would best describe as a mercurial. You know, they had like mm-hmm. a, a lot of wonderful talents, and um, you know, the individual flair never in doubt. But did it ever come together? Very rarely. So I think you came into that game. I think, as as Jonathan alluded, feeling feeling confident and feeling that they probably could get Serbia's number fairly quickly. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, let's have a quick break. And after that, we'll talk about what went on on the night itself. See you in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to the greatest games on the Blizzard. So then we get to uh, this sort of fateful evening, uh, Nick. You're a little bit tired, but as you say, that the uh, sense of occasion is sort of gripping you uh, as you go into the stadium. Um, now, I believe the um, the Albania bus was was targeted by Serbia supporters, or certainly some there were some suggestions of that. So certainly Albania knew they were in for for quite an evening, perhaps. Um, did did that news sort of reach you, or 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 did, was it the sort of the the, the what the fans were reportedly chanting? Uh, you know, there was a lot of unsavoury stuff going on. Is what I'm trying to get at. I never knew about that at the time. I do mm. remember, as I said, it was about three hours, I, I think, before kickoff, and I remember we couldn't, we even couldn't find, or we couldn't get to the media entrance because the crowds were, were so so thick. So we had to sort of go in through a turnstile with everybody else, and it was at that point you knew what you were getting into because it was it was right. it was raw, it was fever. Mm. There was there was a lot of chanting that I mean, my Serbian is not very good, but I know now that it meant kill the Albanian, kill the Albanian, mm. kill the Albanian, and um, I don't think we can swear, but f f Kosovo, f Kosovo, and stuff like that. And there's lots of call and response: Kosovo, Serbia, Kosovo, Serbia, which we would then later here inside the stadium too. So as we got pushed and crammed into the into the turnstile, you could kind of tell what the atmosphere would be like. There were also very very minimal checks on 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 anyone going in there. Like there was no sort of pat down or anything like or anything like that. So the the security itself, which would later become an important theme, um, was very slight. And then in you in you go and you sit down and then it becomes very clear as the teams are warming up that the Albanians are, are being whistled a lot and stuff's being thrown down and hurled at them and, and, and things like that. Lots of flares. Um, but maybe maybe nothing where you think, okay, this is going to kick off and turn violent. And then in the first sort of... If we go to the game itself, the first half hour or so, it was mainly Serbia keeping the ball and not breaking through. A, a couple of couple of counter-attacks I call from Albania. Um, mainly a backdrop of the crowd, I just remember. There was the one side chanting Kosovo, one one side chanting Serbia, Kosovo, Serbia, Kosovo, Serbia, you know, to, to denote that they believe Kosovo to be part of Serbia, as Jonathan was earlier explaining. Um, and I remember there was a couple of times when Albanian players got a ball in the face and, and there were a couple of very crunching challenges when you just sort of felt the temperature raise a little bit. But it was getting towards half time. It was it was it was getting towards the sort of fortieth minute, 
and at that point you were thinking okay this could easily just become a kind of slightly tense nervy knife edge nil nil draw where where no one quite does enough to make it particularly interesting and the backdrop is just sort of your classic hostile environment and and then it um it absolutely went mad yeah um the match of course was suspended for a moment there was flares thrown on the pitch and all sorts of things and Poor old English referee Martin Atkinson had a lot on his plate, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I remember I was at a, was at a game between Greece and Croatia at, at uh, in Piraeus in the Olympiakos Stadium. Uh, I can't remember when this would have been, but the referee was Howard Webb, and there'd been some fights in town between fans, and then um, I think it was in the stadium. It was. Greek fans trying to get revenge on Croats for things that happened in the city, and there was this, this kind of a an enormous, uh, like not an enormous bucket, a normal sized bucket, but it was full of petrol was thrown, and this enormous flame shot up, like literally from from ground level, the flame was up, up to the roof of the stand, and I was sort of fifty sixty yards away, I could feel the heat off it, and Howard Webb was magnificent, and I don't think I've ever felt prouder of an English sporting figure than I did of Howard <laughs> Webb that night. And I kind of think Martin Atkinson did this really well. I sort of—I yeah. mean, I obviously wasn't there, but what I've seen on on the, the footage, he appears totally calm and totally mm. in control of a situation. But was that was that what you felt, Nick? Not a, not a, a, at first. It was this weird dawning realization that everyone had. I mean, in terms of controlling that first forty minutes, I mean, yeah, a, 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 a few tackles and flares and stuff, but nothing that Martin Atkinson would not have expected. But then it got to a point where another flare was thrown on the pitch, right down in front of, of where I was sat, actually. And it almost hit an Albanian player. I can't remember who. So Atkinson, for, for I think the second time that night, stopped the game. And he was, I, I think he was getting ready to restart it when suddenly, suddenly you could just sort of, you kind of hear a hush around the stadium and a few whistles going up. And the atmosphere just completely changed, completely changed it, an almost sort of menacing quiet with a few whistles and you look up and I looked up to my right and you see this this drone which at the time you can't see what it's suspending but it's a, a greater Albania flag coming down and Denko Lazovic the, the, the Serbia player is having to go up to Martin Atkinson basically tap him on the shoulder and say no look 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 that's going to cause some real trouble in a moment. Well, that, that's um, an amazing but, bit of footage, the shot of yeah, him sort of yeah. literally oh tapping on the shoulder, yeah. pointing at it. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and like, you know, at that point, um, the drone is not interfering with play, but Lankovic knows full, sorry, Lazovic knows full well what is about to happen with that. <laughs> and he's pointing to Atkinson. And um, the game doesn't really restart, as I remember. And then the drain starts coming down, and I I had this flashback. All I remember is having this flashback. Um, this it, it's a small digression, but about six months previously, I had covered Kosovo's first ever official game against Haiti in Mitrovica, which is a a split ethnic Serb and an ethnic Albanian city. But that, that's uh, yeah, that's and, where Shevchikuchi's from. Yeah, 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 exactly. He's been close to there, and um, and I remember about two thirds of the way through through that game. Uh, a drone flew over, suspending a big Albanian flag, because in at Kosovo games you tend to get as many Albanian flags, if not more, than actual Kosovo flags. Um, and nothing kicked off at then, but I remember suddenly seeing it coming down in Belgrade and thinking, 
why am I seeing this again? Why am I seeing it again? Oh my goodness, this is what this means this time. And and yeah, it came down, came down, and suddenly suddenly the place started going berserk. And I think it was Stefan Mitrovic, the mm. um the Serbia defender, centre back, I think it was at Anderlecht, wasn't he at the time? Um, who was stood there just inside the the Albania half and um it came down, came down, came down, and the stands are going crazy at this point. Like no one knows what's going on and no one seems to know how to quite react or, or mm. you know, how how um, how to un- uncork their fury at this. So, so, sorry, Nick, Nick, I mean we we now know what was on the flag, but yeah. so it's so there's the So yeah, it was a it was a map that somebody had drawn of a notional greater Albania. Which was, which was basically all of the lands in ex-Yugoslavia, all, of that, all around ex-Yugoslavia, that Albanians would consider theirs. So you've got Albania, as we know it now, you've got Kosovo, and you've also got a part of North Macedonia. And it had drawn out those territories and then written the word autochtonous. Which autochtonous is a word that I only ever see in the context of Albania. Like it's only I, ever used of Kosovo and, and North Macedonia. It's not used of anywhere else in the world, as far as I'm aware. But I it, had to it, look it, it up means in the sort of. That night. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I think that was the first time I'd ever come across it, but I, I've come across it subsequently. <laughs> but it, it basically means the indigenous people of an area, right? Mm. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, for better context, that was what this flag had on. But it, and there's also there's the, two, the two portraits one of. Um, Ishmael Bolletina. Bolletini and yeah, one of, of, of Chimari. Yeah, Albania's founding fathers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but I mean, so the question I was, I was sort of edging towards was how how obvious was it what it was at the time? Was it was it clearly kind of a yeah. a bit of Albanian propaganda at the time, or was it only subsequently that that became apparent? No, really obvious, just because of the colours. Like I, I couldn't see the whole detail then, but the colours and the reaction it spawned around me, like even even in in the press box, because it, it was a classic sort of. Serbian press box where there's about three media and and about two two um, two thousand wives, girlfriends, families, and relatives and everything. So every, every, every everyone apart from about four of us was just going absolutely, mm. you know, mad about it. Um, no, it was obvious what what it signified definitely. Mm-hmm. So as it comes down, it's being caught by a Serbian player. And um, Mitrovic. Now, I thought at the time, and I still think, that Mitrovic was going to take it, roll it up, and put it on the side, and say, I want to get on with my game of football. That's what I, mm. I genuinely think. Maybe I was naive, and maybe I really am. But obviously, that for the Albanian guys, symbolically, <laughs> is their flag coming down and being picked up and pocketed by, by a Serbian, which they're not going to have at all. So, two of their guys, I think it was. Um, it was Andy Leela, and I think it was Talon Shaka, who's, who's Granite Shaka's brother, came up to him and they started wrestling it off him. And there was a little bit of a tussle. And in the end, they come away from it. And they, and they come away with it. And the whole sequence ends up with Bekin Balai, who was the centre-forward, who I think scored the winner against Portugal in, in, in the game that he spoke about earlier, going towards the side with the flag. But he's going towards like the Serbian bench and substitutes and everything. And that's where a lot of the scenes that you may have seen mm. from this game really kick off. You have substitutes piling in. You have a fan coming on, attacking attacking Balai with a chair. You have Loic Sana. Well, the weird thing is it's not even a chair, in. is it? It's like a little plastic stool. There's no... It's a plastic stool. 
It's yeah. a, I just can't can't work out who on earth would have had that with them. Like, it, it's <laughs> yeah, the well, kind of thing that I don't know, like a a grandparent might take to school sports day. Yeah. It's, it's such yeah. a kind of odd, odd mm. weapon. Like, I, of all of all the weapons to kick the thing off, a little yeah. kind of granny stool. It's like, but, I, I love yeah. that. That's your takeaway from the, the, that that scene. <laughs> but it's, yeah, but there's something kind of there's almost something comic about it. It's so mm. sort of. Like yeah, this this furious man with this pathetic weapon trying to hit Bella, with it. and then Loxana like, piles in and absolutely yeah. nails a guy. He and he piles in, and there's just like a general melee. I would say for about a minute and a half, and then you've got on the other side of the pitch, you've got this bald figure in shorts. Not me, by the way. It was a, 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 um, a, a it was a, 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 a much as I was tempted to weigh in. The spectre at the feast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It, it, it was a, a, a quite notorious um, Serbian hooligan called Evan Bogdanov, who'd been in trouble for quite a lot in, in years gone by, and I think um, had a spell in prison. And he kind of he kind of got out um, from the stand, jumped on the pitch, almost as in a sense of sort of obligation. Like, okay, it's going down here. I bet yeah. I'd better see what's going on and get involved and, and throw my weight around. So he goes on like a, I wasn't watching him, you know fully, but I think he got on and had a look around and went back again, but that was quite a defining picture afterwards of this guy Bogdanov, who was a really arch-famous Serbian yeah, yeah. walking in and sort of considering getting involved. But, um, so this stuff's still coming down on, onto, onto all the Albanians, and all, all of this is happening in about a two-minute window. Yeah. That's what's happening. But how it ends, or how this bit of it ends, is so I was sat with Sasha right above the tunnel, right above the tunnel, which is one of those extendable, slightly wobbly fold-out things, you know. And um, so the Albanians have decided to leave the pitch. So they're, they're walking off, and then suddenly, absolute pelters from the stands, and a few fans coming on start, starting to try and kick them. There's a guy in, in red shorts and skins just sort of, you know, taking swipes at people. Mm. And they're all suddenly covering their heads, and running down the tunnel in absolute fear. There's genuine fear because they're being hit by absolutely everything. And the tunnel was kind of swaying this way and that because they're all kind of bundling into each other in the tunnel, just trying to get down it. And it was that moment when the Albanians were running down the tunnel with the obvious terror in their faces where I kind of thought, here, hang on, this could absolutely go any way here. You know, anyone could get hurt seriously. This could end up very bad. That was as bad as it got. But it was a it was a tremendously weird and unsettling thing to see right in front of your face. Yeah, I, I know this sounds a bit sort of weird thing to say, but I, you know, looking at that footage and, and, and hearing what you said there, you know, when Stefan Mitrovic he takes down that flag and all the rest of it, like I, I, I am again. I say this as an Englishman who clearly doesn't understand the situation, or certainly doesn't understand, doesn't cannot get into the mindset of of the passions that run high in this, but. It was the Albanian players sort of rushing towards him and grabbing that flag and so on. I just think to myself, had they not have done that, and I'm and I'm and I'm not blaming or, or sort of pointing at them because clearly, as you say, they got a lot of treatment and so on. But looking back over this, he's a surprise reaction from those players. But I say that in my naivety as someone who doesn't quite get it's, it. It's just so inflammatory, and what happened was so in, inflammatory that I think mm. if. if if a, you know they they saw their flag coming down or onto Serbian territory and they wanted it to be theirs, it was almost a almost a sort of primal reaction. I do, I don't think any of us can understand it. Like I I can't I can't logically understand it. But if I hear about the history and the background and the emotions, then then you know 
you kind of get it a bit more. But um, yeah, but I, mean, I think like it, I is, it is it is worth um, you know, reiterating that Mitrovic. I mean, who knows what he was going to do? But what yeah. we see him do is totally reasonable. He takes the flag down yeah. and he's taking it off the pitch. So there's absolutely no blame yeah. attached to him. Yeah, that's, that's I think what that's he was going that to me is kind of like oh blimey you know like right we've got a game of football here to play and and that's where the the footballs you know some of the footballers almost sort of forget what why they're there and so on and again I understand that as much as I can thus probably not understanding it if it should have been um, I mean the only thing you could say is maybe Martin Atkinson should have been the one to take the flag down but yeah you know it wasn't next to him at the time so. Uh, yeah, very. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's it, it, it's a strange. I mean, there, there was the responsibility for the drone was claimed by a fan group of of a Macedonian side, uh, which was operated by Albanians. There's no evidence to suggest that was true. Nick, uh, was was that ever? Un- it was fascinating afterwards. I mean, I'll just yeah. quickly going going to the sort of immediate half hour. After, please, after, please, um, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, after what happened, but it is it's directly linked to that. So. Mm-hmm. There was a kind of fifteen minutes where everyone, even the people who've been really misbehaving, seemed a bit dazed and confused. Like, oh my goodness, what has happened here? <laughs> so it it all kind of got very calm. And there were these announcements, which I was having to have translated for me, of course. But saying, so, okay, the game is going to restart. And at that point, we didn't know if it would restart straight away, or if they get all the fans out and then try and restart it. And then it, it became a bit more likely that the latter might happen. Then about. Uh, 15 minutes, maybe half an hour after that, we finally heard that it was um, it was off, completely off. So, you know, there's a lot to work to do. You, as the only UK journalist there, your phone's going crazy, emails, etc. But I, I just remember finally walking downstairs into the press room when the stadium was virtually empty, and um, none of my journalists... One of my Serbian journalist colleagues, one or two of whom are good friends, and, and again, Jonathan, you all know some of them in particular, they couldn't look you in the eye. Like, nobody would talk to you. Nobody would kind of um, acknowledge, you know, there was a real feeling of absolute embarrassment. Whether or not they felt they were at fault or the Albanians were, there was a feeling of just absolute, how, how has this happened here? So then, of course, the, the rumours start going around as to who did it. Um, and really late that night, in early early the next morning, um, the the favourite rumour that people start coming up with was that Orfi Rama, who was the brother of um of the Albanian, of the Albanian president Eddie Rama, prime minister, starts, I think, I think prime minister, not president, prime minister, you're right. So, um, someone someone spins around that he was there and, and was controlling it from in, from in the VIP box or something like that and right, and, okay. um, and all these massive sort of half truths start coming out the next day about how he's been stopped at the airport and they found something on him and things like that and you know in the former Yugoslavia a, a lot of rumours and half truths do spread very easily but the next day that was the main line of inquiry among like people like me and other people who were trying to get to, to, um, to the exact bottom of it and, and you're right there was um, definitely a group of Macedonians were quite keen to take credit because you tended to find in the aftermath that a few people were quite happy to um to say they'd done it because <laughs> um, yeah. it's obviously quite quite a big moment. Um, but in the um, in the end, which I I guess we might come to it, it stuck to one man um, called Ishmael Marina, who who I met the following year and who who still claims to this day, and it was him. 
Well, his story is plausible, though, isn't it? I mean, it's having read various interviews with him, both with both with you and with James Montague. He he seemed credible, or, or do you not think so? He's credible. He's credible. I I met him so um so there was. Did so he do the, second... the drone at Gatwick Airport as well? Yeah, he's he's just made a career out of it. He's. Yeah. he's... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, he he, he said that he was in the 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 church of the Archangel Gabriel, which yeah. would be within the eight hundred meters, would have a line of sight to the stadium. So that seemed to make sense. He, you know, the point he made about he he got confused as to which side was which because he yeah. he expected, hang on, expected Serbia to be in white yeah. and Albania were in white, yeah. and that's why he flew towards Mitrovic. He was trying to fly towards Albania. That seems to me to yeah. make sense. That seems like the kind of thing you might do, and the kind of mistake you, you might make. So from well, that point of view, I, I. But I mean, you've met him, so you you, you tell me. No, no, no. I I I, I think you're pretty spot on. Um, but he he also claimed to me the the following year that that he hadn't meant to bring it down towards the pitch. That that he miscalculated and was trying to fly on a sort of arc over the stadium just so people could sort of point and look rather than sort of bundle in and kick off. Um, and you know, a, a few of his claims do differ a bit. I I think it probably was him. Um. What I do know is that he had definitely, definitely created a kind of cult of celebrity around himself. Because I went back the, the the following year when they played in Albania for the penultimate match day of that group, massive, massive game. Because by then Albania had just take, had just been awarded those three points from mm. from the game that was abandoned. But yeah, I turned up to meet him because I I kind of had a bit of a complicated time time setting it up but I ended up meeting him in, in, in the back room of this cafe in, in Tirana so that, you know he's got like a sort of entourage around him very much and he's, and he's just this little slight guy with a beard and curly hair you know I wouldn't say be to a goose when you look at him but he's got all these people around him and um, and so we start talking and you know have a lovely dinner and a few drinks and that kind of thing but every kind of five or ten minutes somebody was ushered in off the street for a selfie and then and then ushered out again, <laughs> and the, and there was just this sort of parade of of people coming in wanting to meet Ishmael Marina, and somehow knowing that he was in the back room of this quite obscure cafe. Um. So and yeah, it, for for reasons that again we can go into later, he he didn't make it to the game. Second. Well, time. no, we can talk about that. I mean, he because he was arrested the day before the game, right, for possession of a legal possession of a pistol. Is that right? Yeah, he was arrested. He, so, so he was, uh, yeah, getting through his fair share of media work in the in the, in the in the preceding couple of days, and he was he was with um, someone who we all know, James James Montague. Um, they, Good they, I was I was wondering when Monty was going to appear in the story. <laughs> yeah, because I think he was. Uh, yeah. he, he 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 popped out of the woodwork for the rematch, and and, and um, <laughs> so you know, so there was me, James Montague, and 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 Rory Smith all all covering it from the UK. Actually, ah, oh, the, the holy trinity. Um, I was about to say, yeah. And so me and Rory were were somewhere else that night. I don't know, but. But James Montague had driven to Durrinch, which is a, a port town, um, probably about 45 minutes to an hour outside Tirana that night. And they were doing some, some filming of something with Ishmael Marina. I, I don't quite know why they'd gone there. He, he would it's quite a nice, Durrinch is sort of like a seaside resort. It's where King's yeah, Old Palace is. It's kind of, it's quite an attractive place. So yeah, I can see if you wanted to sort of do an interview with a scenic backdrop, it would be a good place to do it. Yeah, nice, nice for filming. So... So they'd done that, and then they were driving back at night, and yeah, they were stopped under quite weird circumstances, and it just so happened that the police found Ishmael Marina in possession 
of a firearm, which just so happened to be the day before the game and just so happened to mean that they had to put him out of view, knock him up before the game. Um, and I just just remember the next day being in Elbasan, which was the city where the game was held, being in, in a cafe that afternoon with, with James and Yuri. And we're looking up at the TV and there's this Albanian news channel. And suddenly, suddenly you look up and there's a screenshot of Ishmael Molina and the screen changes and then it's a James Montague. And it says in Albanian, New York Times journalist was with Molina when arrested. And, and, uh, and again, James would tell the story better, but his face just went like that. <laughs> And just, just for, and it was, and and we're sat in this cafe for for the next sort of three or four hours because there's nothing else to do in in Elbasan. Um So we're sat there, and every every half an hour at least, that that bit is coming round again. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and just for a few hours, he was the most wanted man. Yeah. In, I mean, Albania, because of the association with the arrest of Ishmael Molina, which kept him from the game. And that's a digression, but it was a very funny build-up. <laughs> and then Marina, so we, we should, I mean, as far as I'm aware, because Marina was then released not long afterwards, he was then mm. arrested again in Croatia in 2017 sure. on an Interpol warrant from Serbia. And because his wife is Italian, that apparently gave him, because he had Italian residency through that, he had the right to be jailed in Italy. And he was he was released in two thousand eighteen for reasons I don't fully understand, and it's never gone to trial, as far as I'm aware. Is that is that that's, right? Is it... That's the latest that I understand it, but mm, I'm right. I'm not quite sure where that where that is now. But um, but definitely, I think you know, I I think he did do it. I think he liked the publicity afterwards. There's a few bits of his accounts that aren't quite consistent, but um, nobody else has come forward and said they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely very expedient yeah. of, um, of the police to get him out of the way for match day. Indeed. Well, we won't ask about the whereabouts of James Montague right now, but we will say <laughs> that because uh, that, that, you said it was said uh, that obviously the game was was given as a three 0 walkover to Albania. But I mean, if there's complications, but it wasn't initially. Of, initially, it was given well, as a three 0 walkover to exactly. Serbia. So I was going to say, if in terms of you think it's complicated and and convoluted in terms of the uh, the surrounding and the history and all the rest of it, well, trying to figure out how to give this match a result was rather difficult as well. So 10 days later, after the match, UEFA awarded Serbia a 3-0 walkover against Albania on the grounds that Albania had been at fault for refusing to resume the match. Nick, I mean... I mean that was obviously rather contentious uh, for for the uh, the Albania which Football was, Association, which was very contentious because I think mm. any anyone present could have told you that they weren't safe and they were coming in, into the dressing room with wounds and a few of them showing on Twitter that, that blood had been drawn and and stuff like that, just from things which which had been thrown to them. So I I don't think anyone whatsoever could could blame them for running inside in the first place and then for not wanting to to continue because you couldn't carry on playing there. So that was bizarre. And, um, you know, there was a lot of the argument was then came down to the provocation having come from the Albanian side or or somebody presumably connected with Albania, who we now believe is Ishmael Molina. But then the the argument against was the absolutely shoddy security um, and crowd control in Serbia. And also, I think the... um, the rap sheet that Serbia had already built up with UEFA. There had been 
fairly recently an, an anti-Semitic banner, I think, in the same stadium against Tottenham fans when when they played in the Europa League, I think it was. Um, not that long before, I think there'd been the racist incident with England under 21s in Kusovac, which I think um, got them in trouble. So there'd been a mounting rap sheet for Serbia as, you know, in, in the previous years. And I think ultimately it had to end in them them taking a bigger hit. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the, the point here, um, I, I I mean, and I agree with you, Afe, on this. I think they're very reluctant to punish a federation for the crimes of the fans. Mm. And I think that is right, quite apart from anything else, because there's a danger. I mean, yeah, there's a, a sense of kind of fairness and justice and the danger of false flag attacks, but also it, it, it sets up a, a series of false incentives. So you saw, for instance, when there was a racist incident of, when, well, not just incident, but kind of sustained racist chanting when England played in Bulgaria. And the Bulgarian FA's immediate reaction was to go, nothing happened, don't know what you're talking about. And and if they're fearing punishment, mm. of course mm. that's how you react, because you want to minimise whatever punishment there is or, or, or escape it altogether. Whereas if you're UEFA or any sort of body kind of uh, trying to make things better, what you want is a federation to go, yeah, they did this. I don't. You know, help us deal with it. What should we do? You know, give us some money to kind of put in place campaigns, measures to stop this camera, so we can isolate the people involved, whatever. Um, and so I think that's why it's it, you know, those two reasons: the basic unfairness and just creating false incentives to 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 cover things up uh, is why sort of collective punishments are or punishing a federation for the crimes of their fans are a bad idea. However. I also think the home federation has to take responsibility for security within their own stadiums. And if this were a one-off, then I think probably a, a warning, don't do it again, maybe a small fine. But as Nick says, because this is the, the third major incident in a row, uh, then, then you know, I, I think probably that, that was the, the right decision. The country who ends up almost being stiffed by this is Denmark, because they finished two points behind Albania, and they finished third, and they, okay, they do end up qualifying. But they could easily have missed out as a result of Albania being awarded a game which they hadn't actually mm-hmm. won. So I, the, 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 the awarding of games, I'm also quite uncomfortable with. I think a, a better solution, if it's at all possible, would be to try and replay the game, if need be, behind closed doors or in a neutral ground, and maybe dock points as a punishment rather than awarding the game. But mm-hmm. I, can't, you know, I can't really fault the decision. Well, Serbia were given a three-point deduction, of course, in order to play the next two home games behind closed doors, and both uh, federations were fined €100,000. And, of course, they appealed the decision that was upheld, and then they took their further appeals to the Court of Arbitration for Sport the following July in 2015. Remembering the match was played in October 2014, so it's run on a little bit. Uh, they rejected the Serbian appeal, but they partly upheld um, the, the Albanian one. So they, the, the final ruling by uh, Cass was that the match uh, was a, was caused by security lapses of the the organisers and acts of violence exerted on the Albanian players by Serbian fans uh, and at least one security steward, and so therefore they reversed the result, awarding uh, Albania three 0 victory, which meant that there was a lot riding on that second game, Nick, which you mentioned that you were at when when Serbia actually ran out two 0 winners. There was a lot riding um, riding on it, and firstly, I would say that yeah, I I personally don't think anyone deserved to get the three points from that game and, and I think you know the the security lapses from the Serbian end were absolutely inescapable and pretty 
shocking actually to see it in the flesh. But um, then again, if an Albanian flag hadn't come down and if a load of Albanian players hadn't bundled in on the Serbian player who might have taken the flag away, mm-hmm. then, then none of this happens. So, you know, I know that in terms of technicalities and cast and, and the rules, these things don't always level out. But definitely I, I, I can't see one clear offender here. But that's how it panned out. And um, so Albania, in, in that game, we're in this remarkable situation where if they beat Serbia in, um, in, in Elbasan, they were going to qualify for Euro 2016. So you might have expected a real, a real pressure cooker atmosphere again and, and maybe something ramped up further and further from what happened the previous year. So, as I mentioned, a few of us turned up, maybe expecting stuff to happen. I remember my editors at, at The Guardian were doing minute by minutes from home and sort of photo galleries, and I, I was doing a live report, and, you know, people were, were expecting quite a lot. And it didn't quite happen. I, I, remember, um, I remember going up in, in, into the apartment of, a, of, of someone whose apartment overlooked the stadium um, in Elbasan the day before, and him saying that, you know, he wasn't even going to watch the game, bother watching the game. They'd all been told not to stand in their apartment, so they'd all been told to go somewhere else and totally clear the area around the stadium that night. I remember them being in the stadium and looking up opposite me and in the building opposite, there was a sniper quite clearly stood there ready to, you know, ready, ready to snipe um, if, if, if anything bad happened. So um, the short story is that the security operation had been absolutely formidable. And you went in, and the atmosphere, to be honest, was almost sterile, given given what a big game it was, but probably the biggest in, in Albania's history now. And given the context, nothing happened. And Albania didn't really show up. I mean, Serbia hadn't got the exact goal in it or something, but they were both right at the end, I think, 88 and 90. Um, counter attacked twice and won. And everyone went home, and it was really, it was just like it it was it, it was a given the build up and, and and all the events leading up to it, it was a massive anticlimax. Albania, of course, three or four days later, playing Armenia, I think it is, and they absolutely dominate them, and and and, and they went three 0 which was almost un, unknown for Gianni Dibiazzi team, and um, and and they qualify, and and then the celebrations kick off in Tirana and also in in Pristina, uh, the capital of Kosovo. But that night itself was weird. It was it just drifted by. Nothing really happened, and you've got the yeah the, the sinister figure the whole time of this at least one sniper up in the building opposite you. Mm. Yeah, I suppose it's enough to sedate any crowd though. There's a threat of that maybe. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I take the point. Well, they made it to the Euros, of course, which was their first um, major tournament. Um, and uh, well, yeah, I think I think we we should end there. But Nick, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this. Thank you very much, and and we're very glad you survived quite a, an incredible ordeal. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Not at all. But uh, for more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Uh, that's it for this week. Myself and Jonathan will be back next week with another great game from the history of football. Cheers. Mm-hmm.